Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. For those of you who have not met me, my name is James. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, it is an honor that you would come to be with us this morning and worship with us. I would love to meet you after the service if you have uh, a chance at the end. And uh, this morning, we are going to be continuing in our teaching series that we started several couple months ago that, we are enti- that we've entitled The Big Picture. And it is our goal to go through all 66 books of the Bible, preaching overview messages, one message per book that kind of gives an overview message. It's good to sometimes back out from the scriptures and to just understand what does that book, what is that book, why did God put that book in the Bible? And uh, real quick, before we get into the book of Judges, I want to just let you know that next week we plan to take a break from this series for the summer, and we are going to, uh, by God's grace, we're going to go to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And uh, the, the book of Colossians, the theme of that book is that Jesus is greater than anything. He is Lord over all, and because of this truth, it should affect the way that we live our lives. So if you want to get a jump start on next week's sermon, read the first half of Colossians, and uh, we will be preaching on that, by God's grace, next week. Now, back to the book of, what did I say? Just read the whole, go ahead and read the first half. You can read chapter one, two. The first chapter, half of the first chapter. Yes, thank you. Um, So getting back to the book of Judges, I want to begin by giving some context and some background on this book as we're getting into it. Uh, This is an anonymous book. We do not know who the author is. There are some who believe that It possibly could be the prophet Samuel who wrote this, but we honestly don't know who wrote it. And uh, it's a book that spans over the 350-year period between the death of Joshua. Today we're going to see that Joshua dies all the way to the first king of Israel, whose name was Saul. Yes, so it's going to span 350 years. Um, Judges derives its name from the 12 judges who are in this book, they were civil and military leaders that God raised up to lead and then to deliver his people when they got into bondage because of their sin. They got into bondage with the surrounding nations, so God raised up these judges. I've got a list of all 12 of them right here um, that you can see. Uh, these are, these are um, 12 judges, and um, you know I'm going to just say up front that although there is a lot that I would like to go into on all of these judges this morning, um, especially like Deborah. She's, she's the only, if you, I don't know if you noticed this, but she's the only female judge that's up there. And what's interesting, this is a very, she's a very interesting lady, very godly. She gave counsel to the people of Israel during this season in the history of, of Israel. And uh, both liberals and conservatives like to point to her as the reason of why women need to be doing or not doing what they're doing, okay? So, but that's not actually why she's in the book, this book. And we're not going to get into that this morning. If you want to talk about it after the service, um, let's do that. Okay, so 
But I'd love to talk about her. I'd love to talk about, uh, you know, Gideon. Most of us have heard about uh, Samson. But because of time, we're not going to have time to do that. Therefore, my plan this morning is to basically spend most of our time in chapter 1, 2, and 3. And that's because this book really is a confusing book. If you've ever read this book, there are things in there that just, in your mind, just do not make sense. And it's because this book is a dark book. This book is, is disturbing, not at the very beginning, but by the time you get to chapter 21 of this book, it is horrible what has happened to the nation of Israel because this book records the downward spiral of the nation of Israel as they give in to compromise. And that is when they begin ignoring and refusing to obey God's word. And, and like I just said, this book is a, confu a confusing book unless you keep in mind that it's, it's important as you're going through this book to keep in mind that God does not endorse everything that you see his judges, his prophets, his priests, and his people doing. This is, this is just a record of compromise. It records the compromise that's in the Bible. It, it records the good. It records the bad. It records the ugly. And it shows how God works through this still to bring about his redemptive purposes. And because it shows the good, the bad, and the ugly, this is the reason that we can know that the Bible really is a true book. Because it doesn't try to cover up the character flaws of God's people. And so if... if um, if you'll read it, you're going to see that God's people are eaten up with major character flaws. As, uh, they, as, as like I said, they continue to spiral down because of compromise. And you know, spiritual compromise, that's, that's what I want to talk about this morning from this book. It is an aggressive, uh, it's like an aggressive weed that takes over and chokes everything else out. It's kind of like bamboo. Have you, have you ever seen the old bamboo? Um, I've got a picture right here of, of a gazebo at my house. Um, this is what this gazebo looked like before. Don't go to the next one yet, but this is, this is what my, this gazebo looks like without bamboo. About 25 years ago, my father took two shoots of bamboo and went out into the woods and just planted them. And, and we didn't see those things for years. But recently, we've seen them come out of the woods. And you go back there, it's a forest of bamboo. It just has spread. It's taking over. It's heading towards my house. Now, this is a picture of it the, the, without bamboo. This is a picture with bamboo. And it's amazing how two shoots have totally taken over this gazebo. And uh, the, the picture on the left represents Israel at the beginning of the book of Judges, and the picture on the right is meant to represent uh, Israel at the end of Judges. It's barely, they are barely recognizable. And the reason that Israel goes to this state is because of compromise. And there is a verse that's repeated several uh, twice in the book of Judges, Judges 17, verse 6, and then in Judges 21, verse 25. It's a summary of the book, it says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, and this is what I want you to really see, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? 
Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like the age that we live in, where the, where the culture is teaching us to, to believe that everyone's truth is truth, unless my truth contradicts your truth, right? Now, before we get self-righteous and go, yeah, them out there. You know, it's in here too, isn't it? Have you noticed it's in, in you? I love what the uh, uh, comedian George Carlin said when he was alive. He said, have you ever noticed that anybody driving slower than you is an idiot? And anyone going faster than you is a maniac. Have you ever noticed that? I have. It's true because in my eyes, I'm the only one that's driving properly at the right speed. And, and that's true of the human nature. It's tempting for us to think that our way is the right way. It's tempting for us to do what is right in our own eyes. So it's, I don't need the culture to tell me that I'm right. I know I'm right, okay? I already knew that. That was a joke, okay? Y'all aren't laughing. But anyway, it's, so it's tempting. And the book of Judges, is, it's so applicable to us today uh, because it shows us This is what happens to individuals, families, churches, and communities, and nations when they give in to compromise, when they reject God, when they reject his word, and do what is right in their own eyes. And so, as we saw last week in the book of Joshua, um, they crossed over the Jordan into the land that was promised to, uh, to Abraham and to his descendants by God. And under the leadership of Joshua, the people are all in. Remember that? They're, they're eager. They're eager to obey God. And we also see, if you read further down in chapter 1 of Joshua, you see that Joshua, when he died, he conquered some of the land. And it's recorded there in chapter 1. But at his death, it's also important to understand that a lot of the, la- a lot of the land still was occupied by Canaanites. Therefore, the Israelites still had a lot of work to do. So we're going to pick up right there with Joshua 1, uh, verse 1, if you have your Bibles. It says that after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Look at that. That's good, isn't it? Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, this is a good sign. This is the very first verse of chapter 1. They, these people are a prayerful people. They are, like I said, they are eager to obey God, last week we talked about how they realized that their strength was not in themselves, but it was in God. So they're they're still in that place. And this is really, this is a great example for us, church, isn't it? Of how we should be as we are moving forward, as we are seeking to make decisions in our lives. Let me ask you that, that. How do you make decisions in your life when it's a major decision? I know we always go, hey, I'm praying about it. And I've said that and I wasn't. Um, and don't look at me like, I can't believe you did that, because I know you do it too. But we say, I'm praying about it, but do we really pray about it? That's what they're, what they're showing here in, in this passage. And it, it, it's, it's one of those things that, that reveals, prayer reveals our dependence or our independence on God, whether or not we pray or not. And right now, these people are really, they're dialed in, and they are prayerfully seeking God. And in verse 2, the Lord answers. He says, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah and Simeon, his brother, these are, now these are two tribes that are going to be talking to each other. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me. 
that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Now look, not only are the people dependent upon God, but they are also interdependent on one another. Simeon uh, is going to help his brother Judah fight his battles and vice versa. This is another great example for how we should be as a church, as we are dependent upon God and interdependent upon one another. The sad thing is, is that they start out like this in chapter 1. At the end of this book, they are divided by a civil war within the nation. And we see here for a time that after the death of Joshua, the people are going to remain faithful to God. They're going to live uncompromised lives. But unfortunately, it is short-lived because we see in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. I've already said that. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. Just recapping this one more time, as long as Joshua and that second generation that came out of Egypt were alive, the people followed the Lord. And then we come to verse 10, which is a tragic verse. It says, And all that generation also gathered, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That second generation died, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, if you're taking notes on, you can take notes on the back of your weekly. You can write this down as my first gospel truth. And that is, number one, that compromise is subtle. We need to understand that compromise is subtle. It didn't happen overnight. After starting out strong, something happens midway through chapter 1 in verse 27. It says this, Manasseh, which was another tribe in Israel, did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshem. You see that? They don't obey God. They don't drive out the inhabitants of Bethshem. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. In other words, they gave partial obedience to what God had commanded. Instead of fully obeying the Lord, they began to compromise by doing what was right in their own eyes. They were probably thinking, you know, instead of, of driving them out, that's not really a good economic decision. Why don't we just enslave them and put them to forced labor? Let them do the dirty work. That way we could worship the Lord, have more time worshiping the Lord if we put them to work or some type of something uh, compromise in their mind. They, they would, were asking, do we really need to drive them out? Why can't we coexist. Now, I want to make a point here and point out that God never told them to make their enemies slaves. They did this from their own thinking. He told them to totally get rid of them because they will come back to bite you and they will lead you away from me. He said, totally remove them from the land. And you know, recently I was at my house weed eating around the front porch, and these bees started swarming. And so I looked up under it, and sure enough, there was, this is the picture of 
the hornet's nest that was under there. And so you know what to do with those, right? You can either burn it, but I didn't want to burn my house down. <laughs> Got it, guys. Or you can get one of those bottles that you can spray like 22 feet away. And that's what I did. I got one that you can spray 22 feet away. And I did a rookie mistake. I did it during the day. I, I, I know. I said I knew. You guys are so judgmental. But I, you know, I spray, and then you're, hit, you're trying to hit the ones that are, and then it runs out. See, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You know. But I'm a, I'm a country boy. I know you do this at night. Uh, when, they're, when they're, they're asleep. And I know that it says on the can, I went and read it, it says, for best results, spray in early morning or early evening when insect activity is minimal. Okay, I know that. But I did what was right in my own eyes and sprayed that thing. I doused that baby and, until nothing was coming out. And so I thought I'd taken care of it. And a week later, I'm walking up on top of the deck and these bees start swarming again. I'm like, what in the world? And I went under there, and the Canaanites had returned. They were living under my deck. So you know what I did this time? I obeyed the word written on the spray, and I got up early in the morning, went up, went up, went up there and sprayed it. Not only that, I tore that thing down, sprayed it some more. That thing is not coming back, I promise you. But um, I had compromised what I knew to do. I didn't follow the directions, and that hornet's nest remained and returned. And in the same way, Israel began to compromise on God's instructions that he had given them. And, it, and at first, it seemed like a good idea. We'll just make them slaves. But their disobedience began to spread throughout the nation. And, and we see that uh, in, uh, in just a second here. The second gospel truth I want you to write down is that compromise is contagious. It's subtle and it's contagious. Look at what happens in just a few verses down. In verse 29, it says, And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Compromise is contagious. We need to understand that. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, the Apostle Paul warns us, do not be deceived because bad company ruins morals. That's because, listen, we are such a connected people with one another. We are easily influenced by one another. And that's why God is so serious about us dealing with sin in our own lives. Because sin destroys. It destroys individuals. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys communities. It destroys nations. And, it, and it's beginning from the top down, from leadership down. That's why it's important to have godly leaders, isn't it? That's, that's why it's important if you're in a place of leadership to be seeking to be a godly leader. And I was, I was recently talking to someone last week about a, a church event um, Actually, it was a, a pastoral failure that happened, it was probably 20-some years ago, where it was that story of the, of the pastor and the secretary having an affair. Um, and um, what's horrible, horrible about it is that um, 
the pastor was actually counseling the husband and wife, uh, and he ends up having an affair with the wife. And fortunately, the church took action, and they removed him from, from his office. But the guy I was talking to said, you know, he, he left for about a year, and then he came back to Asheville and set up a, a counseling session for marriages. And I was just, are you kidding me? And he, and he told me some of the people from the church actually went to it. And I was just like, that is amazing. But the thing that really stuck to me about what he said was that after this happened in the church, he said that divorce rates skyrocketed in that church. And I believe it was directly related to the leadership, that the people were saying, well, if the leader's doing it, and if the leader's getting away with it, I mean, why am I over here fighting against this sin? You know, when I could live a life like this person is. But let me tell you that it does matter, church. It matters how we live. It matters how we live in private. It matters how we live in, in public. And as you study the book of Judges, you'll begin to notice that as the children of Israel begin to give in to compromise, you'll, you'll notice that they begin to be half-hearted followers of God. That's what compromise does. And there's this pattern that goes through the book of Judges. I want to show it to you. It's, it's actually shown in chapter 2, but I'm going to break it down for you. It's, it's the, what I would call the cycle of sin. The cycle of sin. The, and that's, it's on the back of your weekly um, that, that you can fill this in. The first step is this, the people sin. That's the first thing that happens. If you look at Judges 3, through, 3, verse 7, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. When, when it says that they forgot the Lord, it doesn't mean that they didn't remember his name in their heads. Even the, what he had said could have been remembered. It's that they didn't take action on what God, what they knew up here. They were hearers but not doers of the word, and it, it meant that they went and served the Baals and the Asherah. Now, Baal was the Canaanite god of rain, wind, and fertility, and Asherah was the goddess of fertility. And the Canaanites believed that these two deities, so-called deities, um, had sexual union in the heavens, and so the, wor the worshipers would serve them by having sexual relations with prostitutes, believing that this would bring blessings of fertility in all areas of their lives. And so it's easy to see why their religion was so seductive and destructive. But that's the first step in the, in the cycle of sin, the people's sin. Secondly, after that, God brings judgment. judgment. God brings judgment. Judges 2 verse 14 says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, that is the Israelites, when they marched out for war, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So what's happening here is God, that the Israelites sin, they rebel against God, they turn their backs on God, and God allows enemy nations to enslave and oppress the people. Why? He wants them to experience 
consequences from their sins in hopes that they will remember him, how good it was to serve the Lord, how good it was to walk with the Lord. And his desire is for them not to be punished forever, but that they would wake up and return to him. That's what God does with any of his children, isn't it? When we enter into sin, if you are his child, it says that he's faithful to discipline you for your good so that you will repent, so that you will turn back. And that's the third step of this cycle. The people repent. They realize their sin and they cry out to the Lord. And this is shown in in Judges 10, verse 15. It says, The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And look what the people do. They truly repent. It says, They put away the foreign gods from among them and serve the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. His heart went out to his children. He wanted what was best for them. He wanted to give them life. And so once the people repent, it says that uh, we see the fourth step is that the Lord brings deliverance. That's the fourth step in the cycle. And this is where the judges come in. Okay, this is where we get the name again for the book of Judges. It says in Judges 2.16, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So the judges are raised up. God uses them to deliver the people from their oppression. And then the last step is there is a season of peace. They enjoy a season of peace for a time. And I say a time. It was a short season because this is a cycle that we're going to see. If you read the book, you're going to see that it's repeated over and over in the book of Judges. The people sin. God brings the judgment, the people repent, the Lord brings deliverance. There's a season of peace. But why does this, why does this cycle keep repeating itself? Well, it, it tells us in Judges 2, verse 19, it says, But whenever the judge died, whenever Israel ceased to have good leadership amongst the people, they turned back, and look at this, it says, And were more corrupt. Than their fathers, going after gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. If you're taking notes, this is my last gospel truth from this, uh, from this book, is that compromise leads to greater compromise and greater depravity. Now, what you'll notice when you read the book of Judges, that the first after the first four judges, with Deborah being the last, being the fourth judge, after her, it seems like the judges begin to get worse and worse. They begin to reflect the nation as they begin to compromise more and more. And the last judge was Samson. Again, most of us know who Samson was. Sometimes maybe in Sunday school when you were younger, he was Superman and you wanted to be like, like Samson. No, you you don't want to be like Samson. He was physically strong, but he was morally bankrupt. 
but he is an example of what the culture looked like back in his time. They had drifted so far from God. And parents, listen, parents, we need to take note of what we're seeing here. Because, look, it was only one generation from, away from Joshua that, this, that Israel began to take the slippery slope of compromise that led to Israel's destruction. And, you know, whenever I'm talking to um, young parents, there's, there's a couple things I, I like to share. Number one is when you're parenting, you've got to remember, you've got to realize that I don't care if you are the perfect parent, you are not going to parent perfectly enough to ensure that your child is definitely going to come to the Lord. How do I know that? Because I'm a parent. Number two, I know that because God was the perfect parent, wasn't he? Isn't he? And his people turned away. Jesus was the perfect discipler, and Judas still betrayed him. You can do things perfectly, but it's up to your children to some point take up the faith for themselves and to put their faith in God. So that's one thing I tell parents. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. But then I also will tell parents that God uses your faithfulness in your child's life. Don't be a stumbling block. Don't make it harder for them to come to the Lord because of the way you live your life. And I was recently talking to a, a dad who has a, a preschool child that was giving him a, a really difficult time. And, and so I just did my usual diagnostic questions that I will ask a parent and when they're having problems with their child. And um, I said, um, number one, are, are, are you present in your child's life right now? Are, are you there? Um, is, is your presence influencing them, or is, it, is the influence in their life coming from somewhere else? In other words, do you know them? Are you engaging with them in conversation? Do you know what they like? Do you know what they dislike? Are you building a real relationship with them? Are you sharing God's word with them? Are you encouraging them? Are you giving them encouragement? And are you giving reasonable, godly discipline according to God's word. It's not one or the other. It's, it's, it's not just one thing. But I, I asked, I think the most important question I ask a parent, and it's actually something I would ask anybody that's a believer, but I will ask a parent, I will ask, are you abiding in Christ? How is your walk with the Lord? Are you, do your children, are you passionate about Jesus? If you're passionate about Jesus, you don't have to go, hey, I'm passionate about Jesus, do you? Does anyone know anyone that's passionate about Jesus? How do you know? You just, you know they're passionate, right? We know what each other are passionate about, right? Parents, here's a great question to ask your kids. Hey, what am I passionate about? Go home at, at, when you're sitting around the table, ask them to tell you what you are passionate about because they know what you are passionate about. It, yeah, I've done that before, and so it can be very convicting. It can be encouraging, too. So, but those are the questions that I would be asking a parent who's trying to, you know, we're called to pass the baton of faith to the next generation. I don't know what happened between that second generation and the third generation. I don't know if it was the parents that weren't passing it in Israel to the Israelites or if the children just didn't want it. I, I don't know what happened there, but I know that we are called to pass, be faithful with the gospel that that has been given to us, to pass it to the next generation. But before we can do that, we have to make sure we're carrying the baton. You can't give what you ain't got, right? That's, that's how the saying goes. And so that's one of the things that we need to be examining our own lives. 
Are we passionate about Jesus? Are we abiding in him? And so, you know, the, the problem with this third generation of Israelites and the generations that followed, it's not primarily that they said, woke up one day and said, you know, we're going to be atheists. We're just going to walk away from God. That's not, that's not what happened. What happened is, is they tried to serve God while coexisting with other gods. That's what the problem is. You cannot, Jesus said, you cannot serve what? You know, the, you know this, right? You cannot do that. And that's what they were trying to do. That they, they made peace with their enemies. They're not that dangerous. They can be our servants. And, but what happens is, instead of influencing them, they influenced, the Canaanites influenced them and took them away from the Lord. And we have to, we have, to have discernment about when we're with, with uh, other people, who's influencing who? You've got to be honest about that. Parents, we've got to be honest about who our children are hanging out with or what we're letting them see. Now, uh, sometimes, I'm going off my, my notes here, oh well. So sometimes, you know, there is a thing called sheltering your kids, right? And people will say, you don't want to shelter your kids. I'm like, depends on what you mean by that, right? Would you leave your baby out in a storm? No, you'd bring them in and shelter them. There's a wise way to shelter our kids so that they are understanding what's going on in the world without them being taken away by it. So there's, there's wisdom that's involved in that. Let's talk more after the service. But my point is, right here, is that the people of Israel, they were taken away slowly and gradually because of one compromise after the other. And Jesus warns his church. In the New Testament, he warns us about this about being half-hearted and indifferent. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, he says, he's talking to the church in Laodicea, and he says this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Man, I wish you were either cold or hot, is what Jesus is saying. He says, so because you are lukewarm, because you're in the middle and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, that word spit is very, that's not really what we would say. It means to vomit. That word literally means to vomit. Jesus is like, I think what he's saying is, you know, lukewarmness makes me sick in my stomach, and I want to, makes me want to vomit. If, if we really want to say what Jesus is saying here, God, God can't stomach compromise when we persist in it, when we stay in it. And as you read the book of Judges, you'll see that the compromise of the people leads to greater compromise and greater depravity. That is, I'm not over-exaggerating this when I say that it is really disturbing. I hope you'll go home if you've never read this, and if you have, read it again with the lens of the people are making uh, compromises that have led to what we see at the end of the book of Judges. And what we need to see here is that this book is, is a warning. It was written for our benefit, is what the New Testament says, that we would be aware of compromise. And so as I close out this morning, I just want to close with, I think, an obvious question. And that is, is there anywhere in your life this morning that you are aware that you are compromising? Is there anywhere in your life where you are doing what's right in your eyes, and it's opposed to God's 
word. And you know what the, you know what the voice of compromise says? Here's what it says. It says this. I know that the word of God says this, but that's how it starts. I, you know, I know that the word of God tells us husbands to love our wives and not to be harsh with them, but, but man, if you knew how controlling and critical she can be towards me, you, you'd, you'd be like me too. I know the word of God says to honor and respect your husband, but he's the furthest thing from being a respectable man. You know, I know the word of God says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. I know it says that, but if you knew my parents, they are so far out of touch that they don't, they don't, they don't get it. And if I obey them, I'm not going to have a social life. I know the word of God says to flee sexual immorality, but, you know, the truth is we really love each other. Uh, or, you know, I have these, these desires in me that, you know, I've prayed about it. I've asked the Lord to remove them, but he hasn't. And, you know, I'm just tired of fighting. The voice of compromise says this, I know that I shouldn't do this, or I know that I should do this, but I also know that God's gracious. I know that he's kind and he's merciful and that he will forgive me in the end. That is a very slippery slope when we start talking like that, when we start thinking like that. It's, it's, it's very subtle, and it's contagious, and compromise leads to greater compromise and greater depravity. So that's, you know, I just want to ask you, before the Lord, to examine yourself this morning. I've been doing this all week because I've been in this passage. God, am I, am I compromising anywhere in my life? It might be a blind spot that I just don't see. There's areas that I know that I'm, that I'm struggling in. And, I, and the, the, the key is I'm struggling. I'm not making peace with it. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your heart. Listen to him and respond. And again, this I want to look at the cycle of sin one more time. Maybe you're in the, in the place where God has the place of, of judgment or the place of discipline. God's got your attention. He's got your attention. And he's calling you to come to him. And he wants to bring you deliverance. And unlike the judges in the Old Testament, who when they died, when they died, the people perished, they point to a greater judge, the judge Jesus, and when he died, instead of us perishing, it brought us eternal life. Turn to that judge. Turn to the judge, Jesus, the, the greater judge of the Bible, and allow him to bring you into deliverance. Stick with him, and in time, you will enter into that season of peace, of peace that only he can bring. Amen?